0: How are men to call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That is Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference that it makes in our lives. One person who loves to share the good news of Jesus Christ is my guest today, Tamara Fromm. She's a professor of scripture who has a particular interest in engaging those who have left the faith or who were raised with no faith at all with the gospel. In addition to teaching, Tamara has ghostwritten books on the saints and various biblical topics, and she contributed introductions to several of the Old Testament historical books for the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. Tamara, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Sarah, for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: Yeah, you know, I am I'm really intrigued by your interest in the nuns and duns as they're sometimes called, you know, people with either no faith or who are done with religion. But before we get into that, uh, tell us something about yourself and about what you do.
1: Well, uh, first of all, I am a convert to the faith. I grew up Lutheran and then had a conversion to evangelical Protestantism, so I spent uh, probably about 10 years in the Baptist faith, and then I came into the Catholic Church at age 33, and that, uh, that story is, is a story in itself. I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> So um, beyond that, probably within about two years after I converted to the Catholic faith, I jumped quickly into seminary studies and working with young adults in uh, pastoral ministry. Uh, That led me to uh, work with the archdiocese in with Catholic schools and eventually in uh, higher education administration with our local seminary. Soon after that, I went on to get a PhD, and I'm happy to talk about that doctoral research uh, later in the program. But once I finished the doctoral work, I decided to go back to my love of teaching scripture to Catholics, and also to teach uh, in an undergrad and graduate level catechesis to those men and women who are themselves trying to spread the faith uh, within the parish and outside the parish. So, that's what uh, the Lord has put in my heart, and I uh, look forward to sharing more of that with you.
0: Yeah, it's a, a wonderful thing that you're doing, and just want to thank you for all of that good work. So, you, obviously, you became Catholic as an adult, and as I understand, you already loved and read the Bible as a Lutheran, as a, as a Baptist, but how did becoming Catholic affect your reading of Scripture or your relationship with Scripture?
1: I'd like to start with this uh, quote, and I'm not sure who said it, whether it was uh, St. Thomas Moore or Gregory the Great, but it says, Scripture is like a river. It's broad and it's deep. It's shallow enough for a lamb to go wading, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. So I'd like to think that as a Protestant, I went into the Bible as a lamb, but now I'm going in as an elephant. (laughs) I consider that I now read the Bible in a Catholic way. So um, when I was Protestant, I read the Bible very literalistically. So I would Mm. take uh, each word at face value. So, for example, if the first chapter of Genesis said the world was created in six days, I interpreted that to mean, literalistically, it was a six-day, 24-hour days as we know them. So I no longer read it that way. I also no longer read the Bible or the book of Revelation as a kind of nightmarish story of strange beasts rising literally out of the sea. Mm. As a Catholic and um, particularly as an academic, I, I realize that I need to read the Bible in its context through the four senses of the Bible, and that includes the literal sense, so what do the words actually say, uh, what do the authors actually intend to say, but also the spiritual, the anagogical, and the allegorical senses, which are really big words. But when I think about the allegorical sense, when it means when I read the Old Testament or when I teach the Old Testament, I try to show people the signs or the foreshadowings of the coming of Christ. So I look for stories, I look for images that convey a hidden meaning. For example, the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea, they're allegories of baptism. Um, They represent the purging, the cleansing of our sin, moving out of slavery um, to sin, which is represented by Egypt. Uh, We could look at the manna or the bread from heaven as a representation of the Eucharist. We can look at the bronze serpent on the pole in Numbers chapter 21 as a symbol of Christ on the cross. And if one looks at him in faith, one will be healed. Um, the battles in the promised land, uh, those, those really violent uh, excerpts from the book of Joshua and, and Judges, we can see them really as an allegory for spiritual battles for our soul. And then as a Catholic, I look and the, read the Bible as in a moral sense. So what lessons or instructions are being given to us today? Now, I kind of did that already as a Protestant, so by looking at the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes, but I think we can go even deeper, kind of like that elephant. So for example, uh, when I wrote the commentary on the book of Joshua, we look at the example of the pagan woman, Rahab. Um, she only knows a little bit about this, this Jewish God, but she acts on a small amount of faith. And as with that little bit of knowledge she has about God, um, without even seeing the great miracles, she acts on that faith and she does great things. And then as a Catholic, I also read the Bible in an anagogical sense, which means that I look at, I. I help students see the images that prefigure the last days that is the death the judgment heaven and hell so if we look at uh, the chapter in in the gospel of matthew the separation of the sheep and the goats how people will be separated and judged at the end time now another way that i i read the bible differently is that um, uh, before i became catholic um, i had no idea what sacred tradition was so, basically, there wasn't any history before Martin Luther. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I had no idea that Christianity was actually practiced before him. And, and basically, there was this 400 or 1400-year gap of nothingness, right, in my Protestant mind. <laughs> so, now I recognize, of course, the importance of oral teaching handed down from Christ's apostles and his successors. I recognize also that there's a unity between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. So it's not two different strands, but a single deposit of faith.
0: Yeah. So maybe uh, when you're that elephant diving into the deep end, it helps you keep from drowning. Yes,
1: (laughs) it does. I also read the Bible and teach my students to see according to literary forms. So, and Mm -hmm. this can be one of the biggest challenges, I think, for students, particularly uh, when they first start reading the Old Testament, because just as we wouldn't read a blog in the same way as we would an academic journal, we wouldn't read, for example, for those people who still read newspapers, we wouldn't read the Wall Street Journal the same way as the National Enquirer. So, we, we have to see how truth is set forth in Scripture it is expressed differently in text um, according to history, according to poetry, according to the different ways that people talked, how they wrote during the time. So when I read the Bible myself, when I spend time preparing or teaching, I investigate the Greek or the Hebrew word to determine a broad possible meaning that the writer intended to express. Uh, I also looked to see what was going on in the particular historical circumstances. So, for example, I looked to see what the culture was like. And that helps me primarily when I may get distressed or my students become disturbed about, for example, how women get portrayed in the Old Testament or in the Bible in general, or sometimes when they uh, become bothered by the amount of gratuitous violence, particularly in the books of Joshua and Judges. And finally, I think another way I read scripture as a Catholic is uh, I really feel I've been blessed by having those deuterocanonical books.
0: Yes, what those are.
1: Yes, the kind of like, uh, the extra books that Martin Luther and the other reformers kind of threw out.
0: How have you been blessed by them?
1: Yeah, so I love reading the book of Tobit. Um, I love its humor, how it depicts angels guiding us kind of unaware on our earthly journey. I love the where it shows how our prayers can kind of coalesce in the heavenly realm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I love the portions that augment the book of Esther. So the story becomes richer with more detail.
0: And people may not realize that the the Protestant version is shorter. yes. So I used to think God was never mentioned in the book of Esther, but in the fuller version, it is. He is.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I love the book of Maccabees, too. Um, It was was a hard couple of of books to read and, and teach for the first time, but I think now what I appreciate most about them is how they show us how to live a holy life in the midst of a growing secularized world and perhaps a worldview, too, that's threatens to slowly snuff out our practice of faith. So
0: I love your enthusiasm. And I can tell just listening to you how much you really love to study and to know scripture. And I, I imagine you pass a lot of that on to your students. What do you tell people? I mean, not everybody can study to the depth that you have. Part of that being the elephant in the water, part of it's being Catholic, but part of it is just being a scholar. <laughs> you know, and and what does everybody need to do that in order to be able to really read scripture and hear from the Lord there?
1: No, I definitely don't think so. Um I think we are very fortunately blessed with a number of resources to to study the Bible all the way from um you know, Little Rock Bible Studies through Jeff Cabins, uh, Walk Through the Bible, through uh, more advanced commentaries by academics, uh, the, the organization or apostolate that I teach with, the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. There are many, many resources that one can, can have, uh, whether you are reading the Bible for the first time or you are choosing to wade a little deeper into the water.
0: So I have a, a question for you. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking there's a lot of images of Scripture itself for the Word of God. You can think it's, it's talked about as food and water, a light, a lamp, seed, a sword. <laughs> what does Jeremiah call it? Fire and a hammer. I, I wonder if there's an image that is, really stands out to you as being the most meaningful that you think of the Word of God as in your life.
1: Hmm, that's a really good question, Sarah. Um I would say, and again, I gosh, I would have to reflect on that a little more, but I think what what comes out right off the bat, and sometimes they say go with your gut, right? Is uh um food. Huh. I think of scripture as food because it is that which nourishes me. Hmm. Every morning I wake up and after I have my, my breakfast, I sit down with my coffee and I open um the daily readings before I go to mass and I gnaw upon the word. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what um the the psalmist says in the, the first chapter. Um yeah, so uh the first chapter of Psalm says, Blessed is the man Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditate in Hebrew gives the idea or the image of gnawing mm-hmm. and i I think that's that's what we do when when, when we sit and engage with the word is we pick it apart sometimes one one phrase at a time Um, but sometimes we take it in big gulps right and if we are really reflecting upon it like in a practice of Lectio Divina we allow it to to nourish us we allow it to change us you know they say you are what you eat right Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, you know what are the vitamins that that uh, the word has for us today what's the protein the power that God wants to give us through, through his word. I like
0: that you said that because sometimes we think of eating in terms of taste. The Bible does say that it's you know sweeter than honey. So yes. It tastes good, but there's a lot of hidden unseen things that it does in terms of providing those vitamins and minerals and, and nourishing and strengthening us that we don't necessarily see going on. But if we just do it for the taste only, and not allow it to dwell in us and nourish us, then maybe we lose out on a lot of what it's meant to do.
1: I agree. I think that that can be a danger in the spiritual life. If all we're doing in our in our life is waiting for those good feelings or consolations, uh, it can be a little, uh, as we go on um, within our, our journey, um, sometimes God will remove those uh, consolations as a way of drawing us deeper and deeper into Him. And so we have to, um, sometimes we just have to be faithful in reading the Word, knowing that the Holy Spirit will bring up, once we get that Word deep within us, the Holy Spirit Spirit will will kind of regurgitate uh, the word when we need it. Yes,
0: yes, he'll bring it to our mind. Beautifully said. So I want to move on. I know your teaching focus has been on the Old Testament historical books, and you wrote uh, a number of them, you know, the introductions for the Women's Bible. I guess you wrote uh, introductions to Joshua, Judges, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And that you don't don't need to go into a lot of depth on each of those, but I'm just curious what draws you to the Old Testament. Is there anything in particular?
1: Yeah, there's a number of, of reasons why I was drawn to the Old Testament. When I first started teaching Scripture, I noticed that uh, many Catholics were more familiar, and I think Christians in general are more familiar with the, uh, the Gospels and the writings of, of St. Paul, um, but they are less familiar with the Old Testament. And I think as a teacher, uh, one of the things that gives me great joy is to be able to demystify and unpack the Old Testament for for Catholics because so much of it is uh, can be hidden. It can be confusing mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I also see so many uh, foundations, uh, roots uh, of the Jewish faith that that feed into our Catholic practice of the faith too. For example, liturgically how we worship in, as Catholics. Now, when I was an evangelical Protestant, things were kind of uh, very non-liturgical. So yeah. there was no structure, basically. Uh, I wouldn't say there was no structure, but there was very little structure. And But if we go back to the, um, the way that the Jewish people worshipped According to the Old Testament, it was very liturgical. It was the, the work of the people, and there was a separate priesthood, um, a unique tribe dedicated to, to being the intercessor between the people and God. They wore separate clothing to distinguish them from um, the laity, mm-hmm. for example. And the Eucharist, obviously, the whole, uh, all the imagery that goes into that, uh, the, the Passover feast really speaks to, to what we believe as Catholics. And I love being able to unpack that for um, first timers reading the Old Testament or those who are kind of, again, starting to wade in a little bit more as baby elephants.
0: I think it what I have noticed, too, is that once Catholics start to see more of what's going on in the Old Testament, the New Testament and also the mass and the way we practice our faith really start to come alive. So now, I really want you to talk a little bit about this your doctoral research because you focused on pre-evangelization and the nuns, you know, young adult people who have grown up without religious background, which is becoming so common today. And uh, I wonder if you could share a little bit, what are the main findings that you came across when you were doing your research?
1: The first thing that I discovered is just in the same way that when uh, I teach the Bible and we have to consider the context of the culture in which the Bible was written, um, we also have to consider what's going on in our contemporary culture. So that's one thing that really opened my eyes in terms of how we pre-evangelize. So a couple of the uh, the shifts that I believe that have happened in the Western culture over the last, oh, maybe 10, 20, maybe even up to the last hundred years, one of those shifts is the lack of objective truth. So maybe in the past our culture society tended to believe that there was only one truth that existed and applied to all individuals. Of course as Catholic Christians we believe that Jesus Christ is the truth, the church has the fullness of the truth. But if we have a lack of objective truth in our society, that means that the truth depends on the individual mm-hmm. and his or her own background and circumstances. So what is true for one person may not be true for another person. And to take that to its kind of bringing it out to its conclusion, that means that the gospel message can only be seen as one of many narratives. And appealing to God or the church as a source of authority for truth may be kind of problematic. And then secondly, if there isn't any objective truth, young adults might be skeptical about something called a meta-narrative. That is an overarching story that claims to explain events and gives meaning. Many young adults could see Christianity as one example of these meta-narratives. So if we start preaching uh, a gospel message as kind of the the raison d'etre, the reason for for, uh, why things are the way they are, they may categorically reject it. And then again, that objective lack of objective truth can also often lead to relativism, which means, well, if it's all about my truth, then all religious beliefs can be perceived as relative. And therefore, if we start talking about the gospel or the kerygma, it could be viewed as a lack of intolerance, um, even a, a form of proselytism. Looking at all of those aspects of of our contemporary culture, even the hyper individualism that we experience, the excessive focus on um, me and my desires, Um, I think that that impacts how we pre-evangelize. So it means that there isn't any one-size-fits-all method or approach. We have to approach the person individually and I think that has an impact on, for example, on this, this word that, that keeps emerging in, in catechetical circles, uh, accompaniment, mm-hmm. walking with the person one-on-one, being patient with him or her as he uh, goes through his or her journey with the questions that he or she has.
0: So uh, as you're saying that, I'm thinking this is not much different than the world that St. Paul, for example, was preaching to.
1: Yeah, scarily.
0: (laughs) The fact that people think that, you know, one idea is as good as many. You know, any religion, my truth is just as good as your truth, is just as good as anybody's truth. Isn't that like polytheism? Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of gods out there. Who are you to say that yours is better than anybody else's? And the state becomes kind of a god. Mm-hmm. So, how what can we learn from Paul in particular? Do you think, or or from the Old Testament? You know, what can we learn from the Bible about how to approach the world that we're in today?
1: Well, one of the things I'd like to to think about, and since we're we're pre-recording this one, um, today's first reading in the Mass on July nineteenth. talks about how God reveals himself to Moses. And as I was sitting in mass today, I thought, well, this is a great uh, analogy uh, for how to pre-evangelize. So the lessons that I thought of as as I heard that scripture being proclaimed today were how God first comes to us. God is always the first engager. God is always the one who takes the initiative toward each one of us. And then how does God begin to draw us but but through curiosity through something kind of maybe out of the norm Mm -hmm. like a burning bush a burning bush exactly uh that burning bush attracts Moses it beckons to him and it's only when Moses notices that that and he begins to take the first step toward that bush that God calls out to him, and God calls out to him by name, Moses, Moses. So I'd like to think of, of that story in terms of how do we respond to the seeker, um, but also thinking about, about Paul's address to the, uh, the Greek Gentiles on Mars Hill. So for example, uh, as I wrote in my commentary for the Living the Word uh, Women's Bible, um, Paul Purposely seeks out locations and spaces where non-believers would gather. Now, God does the same thing with Moses. He purposely knows that Moses is out there uh, tending the flock of his father-in-law, and he knows that Moses is going to run into this burning bush. It's something. It's going to be something unusual. Secondly, in in the example of Paul on Mars Hill, he Paul pays attention to what these non-believers know, he pays attention to what they read and what they think. And I think that's very important because if we do not understand our audience, how are we going to speak their language? You know, one of the problems we have with today's society when we start evangelizing is that we use a vocabulary, sometimes we use a religious jargon Mm -hmm. that our audience doesn't even understand. Or we come across as being so kind of, pious that people don't think they can relate to us
0: so some people don't maybe don't know where mars hill is or what story you're referring to so maybe you could tell that briefly to give a just a point of reference
1: Sure. So in the book of Acts, chapter 17, specifically in verses 22 to 31, we read the story of Paul going to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is known, also known as Mars Hill or the Rock of Ares, who was the, the god of war. And he's doing this in Athens, Greece, Um this uh, this Areopagus was uh, located just below the Parthenon, and some people who have traveled to Greece are familiar with this this uh, physical structure. So, at the time, it was a it was a temple dedicated to multiple gods, hence the polytheism, mm-hmm. right? And so, Paul goes into this area and he proclaims the gospel first to the synagogues, and he's also proclaiming it in the marketplace. But then he, gets, he goes to this Areopagus and he starts dialoguing with the people. He starts observing again, as I mentioned before. He acknowledges the good already in their culture. He uses poetry that the audience would have been familiar with. And only then, after he acknowledges the good, does he point out the gap in the Athenians' knowledge of God, this unknown God. So this is a great model for what we call pre-evangelization to non-believers. Uh, the, the term pre-evangelization was used by a, a Jesuit priest, Alfonso Nebreda, way back in the 1960s as a necessary stage of preparation for the kerygma or the gospel message, which taking the person where he or she is, makes a human dialogue possible and awakens in him or her the sense of God that is an, an element for opening the heart to the message. Hmm. So what I'd like to, to share, too, with, with the audience here in this podcast are some of the ways in which young adult nuns were attracted to investigating the Catholic faith, For example, pre-evangelization to the 24 young adults that I interviewed was modeled primarily through the witness's lifestyle, the openness of the witness to share his or her faith, a personal invitation to a church or RCIA or OCIA program, Being open to answer questions and general conversation. Now, this is not rocket science. This is not requiring um, the person to have, you don't need to have a a bachelor's or a master's degree in, in, in theology. This is just being open to someone asking questions. So for example, um, one of the young women I uh, interviewed said, it wasn't even religion that started it. That is her curiosity or her attraction. It was the way that the witnesses treated each other. Huh. She was watching, for example, a number of the young people that I interviewed uh, were engaged to be married. And this young woman was watching the way that her fiance's family related to each other. Hmm. Their love. Yes, the love between them, that the respect. Um, Similarly, a a gentleman uh, was in the military and he said it was just living next to them for so long. And, you know, every day talking about it, Mm. Uh, they'd be taking time out to pray. Um, They weren't into hiding it, but they were very open about it. And yet again, the, that personal invitation, um, that same woman who I just uh, quoted, she, she goes on to talk about a gentle but not pushy invitation from her mother-in-law. She said it was last summer. She had one of the bulletins from our church. At her house, she was flipping through it. She saw the OCIA section and said, if you're interested in learning Morty Bar at our faith, you don't have to convert or anything. You can just go to these classes once a week, and they'll ask your they'll answer your questions. There's a group of people to support you. And in all of the the cases in which I spoke, the young person portrays the witness as being approachable, again receptive to answering questions about religious matters
0: and not necessarily having all the answers because you can them to your RCIA program. or
1: Absolutely. It was just being the catalyst and being able to know where to go to get the questions answered.
0: So we talk about living the word, and that's what it is, right? Allowing that love of Christ to fill you to the point that you're sharing it with other people, and that Mm -hmm. speaks volumes to others. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And I know that you published something based on your research. How can people read that?
1: I published a book called Pre-Evangelization and Young Adult Native Nuns. It's published by Wiffenstock and, and can be purchased there. And uh, I've also written a number of articles on my diocesan website um, regarding the, the research as well. But uh, most of it can be found in, in the book.
0: Okay. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes. So before we go, can you share a scripture that's been particularly meaningful to you over the years?
1: Yeah, probably one of my favorite scripture verses comes from Psalms 37.4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the reason why I kind of, I I really resonate with this verse is because I'm a huge fan of St. Ignatius of Loyola. In his process of discernment, and one of the key ideas that emerges from Saint Ignatius's writings is how we can use our desires to come to discern God's will for our life, mm. and how we're called to serve Him. So many times I hear people say, and I've said it to myself, like, "What does God want me to do with my life?" You know, this kind of vocational vertigo. You know, does God want me to get ma- to get married, to become a priest or religious? But even, even within, while we've established our vocation, sometimes we can become frustrated at our job or at a career change juncture or around the time of retirement. So it reminds me that we need to be grounded in our desires, in our great desires. Now, there's two ways we can mis- we can misinterpret this. First of all, there's this idea that I can just present my Christmas list to the Lord. And yeah. Yeah. Deliver those like the Amazon truck drops off the package <laughs> the next day, right? Very self-centered. And the other misinterpretation is not to place enough faith in those deep desires that God has placed mm-hmm. in our heart. Because sometimes, as Christians, we become a little suspect about our desires, as if they're all wrong and disordered. But what strikes me most about this verse is that we're called to first take delight in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the Hebrew word for delight is the, the word anog, which means to be soft or pliable or delicate. Mm-hmm. And another way to think of this is to luxuriate. So you could even think of the image of sinking into this soft set of luxurious sheets and being waited on. So (laughs) this is the type of pleasure we should get when we're spending time with the Lord, especially in the word of God. But as we take that time in intimacy with the Lord, God then begins to shape those desires. He begins to slowly change us from the inside out. So that those desires become more and more conformed to his perfect will. The desires then will reflect the time that I've spent with him.
0: So he gives us the desires themselves, not only the fulfillment of them.
1: Exactly. And I think it's it's a beautiful image or process that God changes us from the inside out, changes our desires, and then fulfills them. I often pray that God would give me what God wants me to have. Mm. It means that I will praise him. I will give him thanks for his generosity. I think that, you know, going back to the uh, the question about, you know, pre-evangelizing the nuns, um, getting people in touch with those great desires um, can be a critical component in evangelization. You know, St. Saint a- Saint Augustine's famous saying, my heart is restless mm-hmm. until it rests in you. But many people don't realize that this restlessness um, is The unfulfillment of their desires. It's meant to draw them to Christ.
0: Amen. So I would love to pray with that with everyone. And I think if we look at the context, it's helpful too. Uh, I'm going to read, if it's okay with you, from verses three all the way to nine, because it talks about trusting in the Lord, taking delight in Him, committing our way to Him, be still before Him, uh, and some other things as well. So if you want to read along with me, this is Psalm 37. Uh, I'll be reading from the uh, Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. You can read along or just close your eyes and listen and allow the word to speak to your heart as you gnaw on it, as you said earlier, Tamara. It's a, r- a lovely image. As we begin, we pray, Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Trust in the Lord. And do good, so you will dwell in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your right as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over him who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. We thank you, Lord for this, this word and for the life and the strength that it brings. And we pray that you will open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder all that you say to us in scripture. Give us the grace that we need to love and live your word in our daily lives and to share it with others, particularly in those nuns and duns who are around us who don't know you. Help us to show your love to attract them to you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, amen. And Mary, mother of the word, pray for us. So Tamara, I have really enjoyed hearing what you've had to share with us today. Thank you so much for for coming on this podcast and talking with us, sharing your wisdom.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's been a real pleasure for me too. And uh, I just want to encourage the audience to uh, go deeper like that elephant in scripture.
0: Yes. Splash around and spoke it up. (laughs) Okay. Well, this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. I hope that you will join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. And if you'd like to get a copy of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible or the brand new Companion Journal, they are available to you for a special price. $5 off of each and free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast. The offer expires at the end of this year. And may God richly bless you as you read His Word.